Channel F, the one with all the fun. The Fairchild Video Entertainment System at your larger JCPenney. The home entertainment system that never gets old. Plug in a new video card and change the fun. everyone, welcome to another special episode of the Channel F Files. One of our listeners, Mr. Classy Freddie Blassie, found yet another interview with Mr. Jerry Lawson. This was done back in 2005. So let's take a listen. So, uh, how are you doing today at the Classic Gaming Expo 2005? Hey, how are you doing? Not, not too bad, not too bad. Um, just wanted to ask you a couple questions about the Fairchild Channel F you created. Yeah, sure. And um, are there any unreleased games or prototypes that were made for the system that never actually came out in the stores? Yes, several. Uh, yeah. There's about about a dozen that didn't make it to the stores, weren't produced. There's also uh, some hardware that uh, we never put in the public domain, like a cabling system, which allowed you to uh, download video games over cable television. We built those receivers for an experiment with teleprompter, and uh, unfortunately today I don't even have one of those around. They were made, uh, several hundred of them, and uh, they were never put out. Hmm. And uh, one good question is, if, would you be interested in, in dumping any of those ROMs to the internet for um, emulation, or like if those Atari age guys wanted to help you on that, would you be interested in that? Sure, uh -huh. yeah, I can do that. Cool. I, 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 I would say I can make it available if somebody wants to do it. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be cool right there. Um, also, um, are, are there schematics for the Channel F if somebody was going to, you know, put it on one chip or just, um, you know, someone that's tinkering around with things? Uh, it could be. Uh, I have I have to look them up, but I have schematics somewhere. Because that would be something that could be good on the Internet as well, because what I've seen on the Internet is that no, no schematics are available on the internet, so that would be something uh, something rare, you know, to... Uh... Oh yeah, well I have somewhere, I have to look them up, but I have somewhere where I have Cool. And are, were the games um, purposely not the, exactly the same size as an 8-track? Like they resemble an 8-track a lot for a... Uh... Well, it was not, they were... The concept of putting them in to uh, the cartridge was not to have them confused for an 8-track, because it would have given, given us problems by placing an 8-track into the slot. They were purposely made not to follow an 8-track. And, and they couldn't have been made smaller or bigger or anything like that? They could have been made smaller. But again, the ergonomics of it was to make it handheld and heft to it. People could perceive value by size and weight. If they were made to the size that they really were, uh, People would have difficulty in tracking where they are, feeling for them, and merchandising them in stores. It would have been difficult. So again, they were made to a certain size to matter to receive the worth of the device of the, of the games. Okay. And uh, getting philosophical there, um, what, what, what were you uh, planning to do with Fairchild had it not went out of business? Like, where would you have, what would have been the next step had you still been working at Fairchild and producing? Uh, well, we were producing, getting ready. I had a design for a personal computer. And uh, planning 
producing that personal computer and putting it out. It was a device that uh, looked like a laptop that had a docking station that was the desktop, which had a monitor and everything else built into it, with floppies cool. and eventually hard disk. But I was never allowed to put it through. We kind of went out of existence before we uh, got to that point. So you're more going into like the PC realm rather than the gaming was Yes. In fact, the word uh, one time was I dislike that term. Uh, it was an easy term for people just to come up with home computers or something in my mind that are put into a home. It's a computer that runs the home. It runs your refrigerator, it turns your lights on, it runs your air conditioning, it runs your burger alarm, it runs your communication. That's a home computer. A personal computer is one that you use personally to do spreadsheets, applications, word processing. Were you going for both of those types of computers or were you going for No, here? because my feeling is that the one home computer was a different machine and I felt that it was something that you had to incorporate with a building company at time of construction of a home. Hmm. That makes sense. It was very hard to add that as aftermarket. One of the problems you find with every computer is the interface wiring between the peripheral devices and the computer itself. In fact, there's more money in the wiring than there is in the electronics to do it. Huh. Uh, the cost of the wiring is prohibitive. This is what has also given rise to a lot of wireless functions. But I don't think in every case wireless is the answer. I think in many cases if you're going to do control power applications, wireless is not going to handle it. Okay. And um, from being in the video game interest industry from the beginning, what would you say would, what do you um, say could be the future of gaming as you see how it is now and how it was then? What do you think video gaming will do in the future? Well, one of the things I was looking into myself is the scenario game that puts you in the game. In other words, a game of adventure that the player is actually you. In other words, the camera takes a picture of you in all angles. And that becomes the player in the game. So a lot more VR and like total immersion and things like that. Total immersion in the game where you have a scenario to take you to places you can't go today. Okay? Mm -hmm. Where you have backgrounds, you're in Hawaii, you'll be walking a beach, you'll be climbing a mountain, doing all the things you can't do normally, but you can do it in your home with a view of you. Because when you see yourself in something, it's different than you just see the view of it and to see you interact with other people, uh, villains, monsters that you can defeat. But not necessarily karate jumping, maybe you defeat them with uh, your brain. Something so almost, so maybe you could say like the future of video gaming, like the ultimate would be kind of to um, end up creating like a matrix type of environment then where yeah. it's a virtual, total virtual reality then. Yes. Okay, it's interesting. Um, how about that POW TV for those curious about that? How did that actually physically work with the um, phone it, and the... It was twofold. As I mentioned, the guy's name was Marv Kaplan. I don't even know what happened to him to this day. But it was years ago. He approached us about the concept. And he had the idea, but we applied it to the hardware. Because one of the things he said, well, 
can an individual call in and activate the game. And the problem technically was if it was going to be sound activated, we had to have a way that the announcer couldn't activate it when he's talking on the phone versus the player. So the, the feasibility of electronics was to produce what is known as a hybrid, which would attenuate the signal from the one side being in the announcer, but allow the other side, which is the phone subscriber, phone caller, to be able to say something and activate. Then was to take the signal and make it a closure to the hand controls. In other words, it, when you said pow, you could have said anything or any sharp noise, or you could have slapped, clapped your hands, it would have done the same thing. It would activate uh, the closure to the hand control, which would activate something in the game. Okay. And my last question is, what did you get involved with after Fairchild? I, for a short while, uh, I went into video games myself. I produced a company called Videosoft, where it started out that I realized that cartridges had a limitation. And then let me tell you what the limitation is. You build so many cartridges and they don't sell particularly, you have a logistics problem of where to balance your inventory. So what I came up with is instead of using ROMs, using cassettes. I wasn't the only one that came up with this concept. The difference was my unit had a cassette recorder and player in it and plugged into a 2600, sat on top of it. And it also had a connection to the phone line. And I was planning on introducing a whole level of interactive games between played over the phone. So that two players on both sides having identical games with an audio line to their phone could play each other. That's so cool. shut-ins could play Joe across town, okay? and uh, do that kind of function and keep score. And that was a new criteria games. Cool, that's pre-internet right there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, actually I actually have one other question before my battery goes out here. Is, uh, what were some of the names of, besides the video um, color bar generator, of some of the unreleased prototypes or unreleased games? Uh, one of them was called Color Order. That one was, it played different patterns and colors on the screen versus music fed into it. That was uh, to play, uh, there was another one that we were working on that uh, actually was a control program for model trains. What it was is that it gave you a picture of a train and you would activate certain functions on a train like lower whistle and give it power back and forth, which actually meant an output signal to drive a HO train. That's pretty neat. How about that um, 3D Atari 2600 game? We, we have that. That one uses what they call analytic red and blue glass registration. There were two images, and the images, one was red and one was blue. And you put the glasses on, and it appeared that the two images coincide. The trick is the distance they appear out from the screen is a function of the registration of how far two colors are apart. How come um, they didn't develop games like that for the 2600, you know, maybe from Atari or afterwards? Because everyone would have loved that, those kind of games, you know? Well, we did. We did that one for the 2600. And that one actually came out? No. We never oh, okay. released it. 
Okay. And what, what was the name of that one? It was first called Poldergeist. Background on how I, where I came from. Uh, originally, uh, I was an engineer working in microwaves and video displays. And about 37 years ago, I came out from the East Coast where I worked uh, in Long Island. It's a wonderful Silicon Valley. Uh, I was probably one of the first field application engineers used by Fairchild. And my primary job was to go around and help clients with engineering problems, design, and applications of semiconductor products. Uh, in those early days, one of the first guys I met, oddly enough, was a guy by the name of Al Alcorn, who was the father of Palm. And I remember in the early days that Al, Nolan Bush, and a guy named Ted Dabney had formed a company called Syzygy. That's S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y. And Syzygy, uh, first development was a Pong game that they dedicated as a coin-op game. And they put it in a pizza parlor in Deer Hall on El Camino in Sunnyvale. And lo and behold, it overflowed with coins. At the same time, I was working on a project to build a device which is a coin-operated game that used a microprocessor. A lot of people in the industry swore that a microprocessor couldn't be used in video games, and I knew better. So I accepted the challenge and went out to design one. The name of the game was called Demolition Derby. And some of the unique features of it is that we actually had what we call coin defeat mode, which was a way of timing the coin as it went through the switch closure to make sure kids didn't use slugs or wire to trip the switch down the machine. We actually had timed the window and had it programmable that this slot time had to be maintained in order for the machine to be activated. We also made controls for it that were optically encoded. Heretofore, before they were contact switches, they were pots, and the idea was to use optically encoded devices because they were more rigorous and could stand dirt, dust, and in harsh environment. About that time, uh, I finished the machine. I was working full-time for Fairchild. And they contacted me and had a company they were working with called Alpex that was doing something on the same order with the 8080 process. I was enlisted as like a secret agent to work with Alpex in developing it to work with the F8 microprocessor, which was Fairchild's uh, homegrown processor. Uh, the project turned out we ended up using the software, but I threw the hardware away. And with myself and a guy by the name of Gene Landrum, we wrote the business plan to write a uh, division for Fairchild which was to go underneath their watch division to make games. Uh, we finished the whole uh, engineering task in a record time. Me and my guys ended up putting it in production in six months. Our management never understood that that was a record time. And we were considered mavericks because we didn't follow the rules of the game. But if we look back for parallel functions, we'll find that many other developments 
were maverick. Uh, you had to be a maverick to get things done because traditionally uh, there were people there ready to stick their foot out to say that's not the way it's done, it's done this way. Well, when you break, break new horizons, you have to break some rules. And we were rule breakers. We were known as mavericks, crazy guys. Uh, we did things that were really different. Even uh, the engineering department, we used to have uh, contests where we would uh, pop the bottle of champagne and see how far the cork would fly and give an award for it. And we had various contributions sometimes, instead of the mechanical one of doing it, our programming guides would do it on, in software on a CRT. Uh, we had one mechanical group actually make tandem rockets to, to blow the cork in this, up in the air, which ended up disastrous when they hit one of the cars in the parking lot. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the other things that were a problem is that we introduced the thing at the CES show in, uh, I think it was 75, it was an instant hit. Uh, I remember having a booth that was like four feet across that was part of the watch booth. And I couldn't even go to the bathroom. I had to make up a sign and have somebody fill in. We even had a crew of uh, people show up that, that did a photograph of the whole thing in a movie that they were to show in Sweden. Uh, the hand controllers were very unique. The guy who actually made them into a reality was a guy by the name of uh, Nick, Nick Talisper and another guy by the name of uh, Ron Smith, mechanical engineering kind of guys and industrial designer. I made the first uh, model of it, the feasibility study, that it could actually be made. Because heretofore nobody thought of an eight-way hand controller. You can actually pull it up, push it down, twist right, twist left, tilt back and forth and forward and backward. So it had eight axes of control. In order to make it work properly, we had to simulate, since it was a digital contact, we had to simulate it acting like an analog device in software. And the way we did that was when you touch the contact together first, the movement on the screen of any object would move, would move slow, and as it would stay, stay in contact, it would speed up in an exponential function. So you got to play with it and use it almost like it was a pot. Some people didn't know it wasn't a pot. So again, here was the power of the microprocessor being used to simulate other things. Our big problem became with the FCC. We entered into the FCC and we failed. And it was a whole uh, educational advance to work with the FCC. At that time, uh, people like uh, Apple had circumvented getting FCC approval because they didn't have an RF modulator. One of the rules that is unfortunate people didn't realize and, and to uh, <coughs> comply with is even an electric razor can be sanctioned by the FCC. If it radiates any noise of a certain level, the FCC can step in and have you disband that sale of that, that device. The reason why they got involved with us is that anytime you build an RF device that is a little transmitter, in order to get approval, the rest of the circuitry comes into play. And very few people fail because the modulator 
has problems. They fail because the other electronics comes into their own. And where we were failing was we had uh, a radiation signal coming at a harmonic frequency that no matter what we did, we couldn't get rid of it. Uh, one of my guys, Will Alexander and I, I remember many times working until wee hours in the morning trying to eliminate that signal. And finally, one had an epiphany one day after working until 2 o'clock in the morning, I went home and I was just bugged by this signal. And I called Will instantly, and Will was still up to it. And I said, hey, Will, let's go back to work. I think I found it. And he went back to work, and I said, what is a quarter wavelength of 52.5 megahertz? And he whipped out his calculator, got half uh, the quarter wavelength, wavelength and length was. I said, OK, now measure the hand controller from the base out to the end, right on the head. I said, uh-huh. So we're looking at a spectrum analyzer, and we saw the signal reached over with a pair of scissors and went, clip, and went, there it is. <laughs> we shortened up the hand controllers by two inches, and no more problems. And we took it to the FCC, and the FCC, again, would play games with it because it was a big political razzmatazz to get through them for a while. And we finally got through, and I was sitting in the lobby every day until it passed. I decided, why should I turn around, go back here, and wait? I'm going to sit there. So every morning, I come to the FCC and sit in their lobby. And finally, after three days, the, one of the uh, chief engineers there came out to the lobby and kind of fingered, waved, waved to me and said, here's your number. Go home. I said, we passed, right? But the big uh, interesting thing about the industry was that many people uh, were sitting in the lobby trying to figure out who the Fairchild guy was. And I ran out like, I guess, assisting in boys' time. I'm really feeling good. And ran out the door, and then ran back in the door, and I said, I'm the Fairchild guy, and we passed. <laughs> well, from there, I went immediately to the airport and got on a plane to fly back here. By the time I got here, the news had beat me back. Because at the time, the other competitors in the business were all talking about making dedicated games, and they were so afraid of the cartridge concept that it was going to put them out of business. Because instead of having a dedicated game for each function, this cartridge thing that was going to sell for the cartridge will go from 1995 up was a big blow to them. And they kept claiming that the only reason is that they won't pass FCC. They won't pass FCC. When we passed, they had a nightmare. But close on our heels by another year was a company called Atari. As Atari came and entered the marketplace. Uh, it was interesting, the first year we brought it out, Fairchild was not used to consumer business. They were not used to even making watches. I made a prediction that the watch business is not the CIS beautiful electronic watches, it's a jewelry business. And that people care less about the intricacies of what's inside the watch. All they care about is what does it look like. And I told that to Fairchild over and over, and they kept saying, oh no, we got the technology. So technology doesn't sell. Technology is what is, makes the product easy to manufacture, makes it cost effective, makes it zazzy, but it doesn't sell the product. Well, First day after Christmas, in the consumer business, it's called 
Hell Day. And that's the day that all the toys come back to the store because they don't work right, or Mildred doesn't like it, or Junior wants something else. And that's the day that all your custom resources have to be in place to receive calls. Well, our marketing department was rather lax. They took off. And I made the mistake, and since the whole plant was closed, was, well, I can get caught up on my paperwork. So I went to work. Me and the guard were the only two in the plant. And the phone calls started coming. And they came. I had a Hollywood movie star call me and tell me what a great thing it was and how they enjoyed it and what we could do with it. Then they started getting frantic. I had one guy who called up that was really mad because he had taken the game completely apart, all the screws, everything, looking for the batteries. <laughs> and I said, sir, it plugs into the wall. But still, where's the batteries? Okay. I had one other call. Will dog urine hurt the game? Dog urine? Yeah. yeah. Schnauzer lifted his leg when he first saw it and let it have a dose, right? We got one one time where somebody cut down. We purposely made this cartridge not the same dimensions as an 8-track tape. Didn't make any difference. They were making an eight-track tape, and we had people carve down the cartridges and carve down eight-track tapes to try to shove them in the machine to play them. <laughs> well, you can imagine, since I was not in marketing, I was in engineering. That toward the end of the day, I was getting a little frazzled, and a woman called up, and she said, "My game hums. Do you know why?" And I said, because it don't know the words, lady, goodbye. <laughs> so you got kind of burned out of shape with all that. But and some of the things that happened were quite amazing. We had a crew of guys, for instance, some of the things that Fairchild Town Left never received credit for. We actually made the first precursor to Pac-Man. It was called Maze. And Maze was a game that it calculated 10,000 different mazes. And it, it, the game was played where two players could go through the maze, and the maze had several modes. One mode is where it was completely invisible, and you were banging against walls and had no idea where it was. Another mode, you actually left a trail. Then the, the guy programmed it, developed another function for it, which was he called it the cat. And the cat would come in the maze and gobble you up. Now, one of the bad points we used to have is that my poor kids to this day, they're now in their 30s, <laughs> they were the pioneers of testing games. I would bring games home for them to play to find the flaws in them. And uh, lo and behold, the kids were making games out of the flaws. And it was funny because you never got the true information back from them. They would make up another game, uh, like they found a way they claimed to get the cat sick. My son told me one time, he was all of about, I guess, three years old, four years old. He used to know where the cat would go. And I said, you can't know where the cat goes. It's random mazes. 
He says, I know the maze. I said, how do you know the maze? He said, if you take button, the reset button, and you hold button one, and you let go of the reset button, you get the same maze. He was right. Because it never timed out. So he knew the time function. He memorized the maze, and he knew where the cat was going to go every time. He also had a problem with one of the games we called dodgeball. Dodgeball, where we had two squares that were players that balls would come in from all sorts of angles from the screen and uh, collide with you. And the kids found out if you took both players and superimposed them over top of each other, when collision occurred, the blue guy would always get the points. It was a flaw we hadn't been realizing. They found it. And they played it. They would holler, but I want the blue band. Oh, and I mean, why? It's the same thing. No, it isn't. Right? They knew. <laughs> What's all that? Who's that? <laughs> Where's Dave? Oh, oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm sitting there checking on some of my notes. You gotta forgive me. I'm half blind these days. Yeah, so uh, some of the other things uh, that Fairchild was responsible for is that we had a TV game that was played over network television. <coughs> and what it was called was called TV Pow. Turns out that in television, uh, particularly local broadcasting, from the hours of around noon to four o'clock is called no man's time. And in those days, uh, local TV stations used to have shows like Dialing for Dollars, or movies were until you know, this time, because their network appeal didn't have any broadcast stations of shows they could put on. And in order to make viewers watch them, they had a lot of audience participation shows. One they had us develop was called TV Pow. And one of the games called Shooting Gallery was devised to where it had a hybrid, a hybrid device where we hooked it to the phone line. The game had a video out rather than an RF out and went into their network video system. When a person called in and wanted to play the game, we would switch that video line over and that screen would be the game. And if they said pow, they would fire a projectile to try to hit the moving target. And if they scored a certain amount, they'd receive a home prize and that kind of thing. The show went on for a couple of years as a fill-in show. Originally, uh, Regis Philbin demonstrated it on TV uh, years and years ago. And uh, a guy by the name of Marv Kaplan was the producer that we produced it for. He went around selling it to different stations around the country. We also had a system that we devised for loading games over cable TV. We actually had it working over the teleprompter network in 1977. It had a battery of our, our uh, software devised on the system that had a cable box which was housed underneath the channel app, and a cartridge mechanism cable which powered the game and powered the, uh, the adapter box. 
the cable went into the back of the adapter box, and you turned it on, it gave you a menu of all the particular games. You would select the menu, and this was an endless loop of data. And it would find that particular game, download it, say it's okay, and then play. And it was unattended running for about two years in Santa Clara. Fairchild again couldn't get their act together as to how to deal with it. And then teleprompter themselves changed and uh, fell apart. And I understand people have revived it and said it's a brand new concept. Yeah, it's brand new. It was worked in 1977. Any questions? You guys are quiet. I hear you breathing out there. Well, that was Mr. Jerry Lawson at the 2005 Classic Gaming Expo. A big thanks to Classy Freddy Blassie for supplying this uh, footage. Unfortunately, it, it cut off early. Uh, I don't know why the video just went from one show to another all of a sudden. But at least we got a few more tidbits of information from Mr. Uh, from Mr. Lawson. So anything we can find from Mr. Lawson is pure gold. So thanks for listening to the podcast. But if you have anything Fairchild-related you'd like to share, you can reach us at our new email address, thechannelffiles at gmail.com. Or you can go to our Facebook page, The Channel F Files, and make posts on there talking about your favorite Fairchild memories or anything else you'd like to share with the podcast. So again, thanks for listening to the show. We'll be back soon with uh, another video cart.